the introduction this morning is entitled Coffee with Grandma. So um, brace yourself. Seven-year-old Johnny was spending the weekend with his grandmother, and uh, they were having a really wonderful time. And uh, on Sunday morning, as they were getting ready for church, Grandma was, you know, up a little bit early, and she was by her favorite spot next to the fireplace reading her Bible and getting ready emotionally and spiritually for uh, worship on the Lord's day and while she was sitting there enjoying her time with the Lord little Johnny brought her a cup of coffee in a china cup on a china saucer and handed it to her then he presented it to her he said here grandma I made this just like you like it and so what is grandma going to do Grandma obviously took it with a smile and said thank you and proceeded to drink the cup of coffee in the china. And uh, when she got to the bottom of the cup, though, to her surprise, she discovered there were three of those little green army men at the bottom of the cup. You know what little green army men I'm talking about? Who of us have not taken pop shots at those with our BB guns? We set them up and pow. Anyway, those little green army men at the bottom of her coffee cup. She pondered on why they might be in the cup for just a second, and then she turned with a smile and said, Honey, what are the army men doing in my cup? She inquired. Her grandson thought about it for a minute and then proudly said, Well, Grandma, it says on TV, the best part of waking up is soldiers in your cup. <laughs> Come on, you got to have some sense of humor somewhere in your body, okay? soldiers in your cup. I guess most of us more than likely would agree that little green army men do not belong in your coffee cup, do they? I think it's safe to say that more than likely those little green men were not washed before they were put, placed in that coffee cup, which is the reason why it didn't taste as good as it should have. And that must have been the worst coffee that grandma had ever Drank, except for the fact that little Johnny, her seven-year-old grandson, made it for her and presented it to her. But little green army men do not belong at the bottom of a coffee cup. But I think it's also safe for us to conclude that sin does not belong in the life of the Christian. Sin does not belong in the life of the believer. I think we would more than likely all agree to that reality, that sin doesn't belong in our lives. But the reality is that all of us struggle with sin. And so this morning, we're going to look at, a, at, at just really one word in Romans chapter 12 in verse 1, where that one word somewhat sums it up for us today in our study. That is the word holy. The word holy means to be set apart. It means to be pure. It means to be without sin. And the fact that you and I who are in Christ are now seeking to live a life that is pure, clean, void of sin. We are pursuing purity. But in our pursuit of living clean, holy, pure lives, consecrated, separated, set apart from God, we have to admit that we're all struggling with this thing called sin. All of us in here this morning are equally struggling with sin. I don't care if you've lived 80 years as a believer, as a Christian, or if you're beginning your Christian life. I don't care if you're 7 years old this morning like little Johnny, or you're 97 years old. We all are struggling with sin. All of us have that one thing in common. We are struggling with sin. And we have to define sin, though, because, you see, our culture today is redefining sin for us. But simply defined, sin is a violation of the will, the word, or the law of God. Some of you in your study this morning talked about the importance of the law and how the law helps us understand how we are then to practice out our faith. But the law also, in that practice, helps us remain and stay and strive for purity because God wants us as believers to be free from sin and from the domination and the control of sin in our lives. And so in Christ, we are pursuing purity. In Romans chapter 1 through 11, the apostle Paul talks a lot about where we were pre-Christ, where we were before we were saved, and all the wonderful benefits and the blessings that are ours now in faith. And now in Romans 12, verse 1, he says that we are to offer ourselves unto the Lord as holy unto him, pure, clean, free from sin, to be set apart for sin. 
Some of our sins are sins of commission. What do I mean by that? There are sins that we know that we should not do, and and in spite of knowing what the law says or what the Scripture says, we do them anyway. There are some sins that we may not even know that we're doing that are violations of the law. We are doing or practicing or becoming that which God has told us not to do. Those are sins of commission, but there are sins of omission. Those are the sins that we commit that, that we are not simply doing what God has asked us to do. We know what God wants. We know what God desires. We know where God is leading. Yet because of of our struggle with sin and our struggle with the flesh, we just simply are not willing at the moment to go into the direction that he's leading us to go or to do what he is asking us to do or to become what he wants us to become. So sin in in, in and of itself is simply a, a violation of the law or the scriptures or the will or the word of God in our lives. And so that's a, a very safe definition. And so we all have to go to the scriptures to understand what our definition of sin is. And it's important that as we define sin in our lives, that we define it from the scriptures. For it is the, the scriptures that help us not only confront our sin nature, but show us how we can deal with it. And Paul has done that very plainly in Romans up to chapter 12. He said in Romans 3.23, for all of us have fallen short. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. He said in Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death. And then he says in Romans 10 that if we confess in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he was raised from the dead we will be saved. He reveals the plan of salvation. And now in Christ, we have been set free from not only just the condemnation of sin, but we have been set free from the control of sin. And if we've been set free from the control of sin, then why are we struggling with it so much? Anybody in here feel feel free from the control of sin? I mean, it's it's a constant lifetime battle, isn't it? We often have a tendency to think it's just for the, 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 the young people or the teenagers or the children. Uh, maybe it's for the young adults, but it's not really for me because I've been living for the Lord for a long time. And I think that is not only pride, but I think that's a misrepresentation of being completely honest and being humble before the Lord. Because all of us, including myself, struggle moment by moment, day to day, with sin. And as we pursue purity and as we seek holiness, we need to understand that it's a struggle that we're all in. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church, to the Roman church, to the Christians in Rome, and he's encouraging them to present themselves unto the Lord holy, set apart, consecrated, dedicated, pure, sin-free, and so I want to take a look at what he says in the book of Romans in order to, for us to enjoy that reality. What is holiness? Before we go any further, what is holiness? It's to be set apart. It is to be free of sin. It's, it's not to be controlled by sin. Now, the fact is that we're going to be controlled by sin from time to time because we relinquish control as a believer. But as a believer in Christ, we have the authority and the power in Christ to resist sin and to avoid being captured by the stronghold of sin in our lives. And the sad reality is there are many Christians today who are, who are, who are there's a stronghold, or there are strongholds in which sin has enslaved them rather than enjoying the freedom that Christ died so that they could enjoy in Christ. So I want us to take a look at this incredible passage about how we can pursue purity and how to stay strong in your struggle with sin because the reality is that many of us have a hard time staying strong. I don't know about you, but it's a constant 24-7 fight to stay strong and to struggle with sin. And so how do we stay strong? Let's take a look at, at seven quick things. First of all, there is the call to stay strong. He says in this passage in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you. I appeal. It is a call. It is an exhortation from God through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul to present ourselves holy, sin-free, 
as living sacrifices unto the Lord. I appeal, I exhort, I encourage, I call. It's not an option for us as believers in Jesus Christ. He says, I am calling you as Christ's followers, those of you who are in the church at Rome. This is to you who are believers. I'm calling you to a life of holiness. That's a call you don't hear very often in the church today, if you hear it at all. Because we're redefining and we're renegotiating sin and and redefining what holiness looks like in respect to the word and to the scriptures. But he's saying to us that through this, this writing to the church at Rome, I am calling you to purity. I'm calling you to righteousness. Notice as he admonished them in Romans 8, verse 28, he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, <clears throat> excuse me, according to his purpose. For those whom foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I almost wanted to do this morning this study on sanctification, and some of you. It's a big word. I, I get it. It's, it's the process by which God is, is sanctifying us. He's purifying us. He's cleansing us from sin. It begins at conversion, and it doesn't end until we reach our final breath, and we die, and we go into heaven. And, and, and until then, that, that sanctifying process that God is still working out in me and in you who are Christ's followers, uh, this, uh, to be conformed to the likeness of the image of God, he's, he's working out his purpose. And that purpose in, in this text and in many others is for you and I to reflect the image of the likeness of Jesus. Jesus was the only one who walked on the planet, the only individual, the only person who was ever completely, totally sin-free. Only Jesus. No one else. And go ahead, just look around you. You're in a a congregation here of sinners. I know that's hard for for some of us to swallow. Because we we like to get on our our religious suit on Sunday morning and walk around as pious individuals. Like, I've been living for Jesus all week long. Praise God, I've been victorious. I've never been one time defeated this week. I've never thought a thought I shouldn't think or or say a word I've never shouldn't have said or never gone anywhere I shouldn't have gone. My my motives and my, you know, and and we just walk around like, uh, (laughs) like this is not for us. This is for them or for someone else instead of for us but it's a call here for all of us to a life of holiness a holiness that's defied by God's standard not ours and that standard is Jesus I spoke earlier this week with a young man from Mark from uh, KSN News and in February I'm going to be on the news again uh, unfortunately, and uh, it's not something I'm seeking, but uh, anyway, it's just what's come our way, and so I decided I would, I know Mark, we had a, a thing, I think a year ago, where we did some stuff together, I trust him, he, I think he's a, a good journalist, and so he came to my office, and we got to talking about the standard of holiness, really, that's not really the subject he came to talk about, but he came to talk about some of the, the cultural norms today, and the the difference between how our church is handling the LGBTQ cultural change and how that's infected our church. And, and I, I, I kind of, at the end, I kind of brought it down to this. I said, you know, I said, the standard is way up here. And the standard is Jesus. The standard is Jesus. It's unlivable. It's unattainable. And in spite of my best effort, with the help of the Holy Spirit and with the guidance of the Word of God, in spite of all of my work and my, my attempts, I can never measure up to the likeness of Jesus, but I don't lower the standard so that I can meet that standard. I keep it elevated and I keep it high to remind me of how far I need to go. And it is a call to the standard of the image and the likeness of Jesus. Notice to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the call. And we must keep our eyes on Jesus and not on people. 
Because Satan will defeat someone whose defeat will defeat you if you're not careful. Let me say that again. Satan will defeat someone who's living a fleshly, carnal life, who have claimed to be Christ's followers. He'll defeat them because you're looking at them and, and, and wanting them to represent the image of Christ, but they're fallen, carnal, fleshly sinners who can never and will never measure up to the likeness of Jesus. You can't either. And their defeat, if you're not careful, will defeat and discourage you. For there is no one perfect except Jesus, and he and he alone is the standard. And it is a call for us not only to elevate the standard, but to rise to that standard with every effort and every energy we have. It's a call to the standard of Christ. Secondly, notice the commitment to stay strong. What is that commitment? He says, I appeal to you, brothers... I appeal to you, brothers. It's interesting in the text that he's appealing to you who are brothers. God, through the Apostle Paul, is describing those who are of the faith, now connected to the Father and to the family who are engaged in the fight against sin. Because before we were Christ's followers, we didn't care about sin. We were dead in trespasses and sin, and we enjoyed our sin. And we gave in to the carnal appetites of the flesh. We had no standard of, of holiness. We didn't look to Jesus or to the Word to set the standard, and we lived our lives as we pleased to please ourselves and whatever we needed to do to gratify the flesh. We did it, but now in Christ, we who are of the faith, who have a relationship with the Father and are connected to the fellowship, that's the church, are now in a fight together against sin, not only in our individual lives, but in the corporate life of the family of God. Notice he says, I urge you or appeal to you, brothers, you brothers. We are brothers. We are Christians. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, notice that he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Hey, Dad, in a respectful way. Hey, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's a call that is an individual call. Notice he said, I appeal to you, to you individually, to you. That's a personal pronoun that is singular. I appeal to you individually. We have an individual responsibility ourselves, accountable to God personally, individually, to stand before God and present to him a holy, a holy, sin-free life. We will stand one day before the judge, even as believers, and give an account of our lives. No one will stand with us. We are individually responsible and accountable for our own selves to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, to pursue a life that is free from the control and the, and the dominion of sin. No longer to be enslaved to sin because we've been set free. We have an individual responsibility, but we also have a corporate responsibility. He calls them brothers. The apostle Paul understands his responsibility to challenge the brothers, those who are in the family, his brothers and sisters in Christ, to live and to pursue righteousness and purity. That means I'm accountable to you and you're accountable to me. I'm just not accountable to you, but we're accountable to each other. And there's an accountability that we must understand that I'm accountable to you. And if you see me not living a pure, righteous, holy, godly life, you should come to me and say, Hey, brother, hey, sister, you're not living according to the righteousness by which Christ died to set you free. 
Now, it's all to, I wish we had time to go here, but we don't. But it's for restoration and reconciliation. It's not for condemnation and for criticism. But it's all about restoration and restoration. And so we are accountable because we are responsible for each other and how we together as a family live. And we have a commitment to one another. It's kind of like that Boy Scout who was getting his... uh, his uh, merit badge for, for service. And uh, he, he, he was getting his merit badge because he had helped uh, a senior lady cross the street with all of her stuff, and that was one of his acts of service. And somebody asked him, well, how, how, how was that? It didn't seem very difficult. He said, oh, no, it was very, very difficult. And the guy said, well, would you explain to us why it's so difficult? He said, because she didn't want to go. You know, helping someone that doesn't want to go is hard. And, and there are times when we are trying to help one another, that other person that we're helping just doesn't want to go. Why? Because the flesh is battling the spirit. And yet we have a, an accountability and a responsibility to go in love for the purpose of restoring and reconciliation to each other, not only personally, but corporately to strive for purity in our personal lives and in the corporate life of the church. That's the commitment to purity that he's describing. We must never, ever relinquish that commitment, and we must stay strong in our individual and corporate pursuit of purity. Number three, we should then understand the conviction to stay strong. There's a conviction to stay strong. He says, I appeal to you, therefore... We've looked at this already, I think maybe more than once. But to recap, if you notice, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as living sacrifices. Now he's saying, I'm going to appeal to you, therefore, brothers, for holiness. Therefore, be holy. And we've seen that any time in the scriptures you see that word, therefore, it is sort of bringing back all of the things that were said previously before this text, before this scripture, to take all that into consideration before you understand what is coming next. And as we take a look at what all that God has said through the writing of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 through verse 11, uh, chapter 11, chapter 1 through chapter 11, we see that, that God has revealed through the writing of the Apostle Paul these wonderful doctrines about our faith. Just one doctrine is described in Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The doctrine of reconciliation leads us to the doctrine of salvation. And they're all wonderful doctrines here, but this one doctrine of reconciliation, we needed to be reconciled. Why? Because our sins separated us from God. But Christ died on the cross so that through faith in him, we could be reconciled. We could now have a right relationship with God. Our sins separated us from God, right? But now through Christ, that sin has been removed. And now we can go into the presence of God through the filter of Jesus. And he sees us in the righteousness of Christ. And now we have been set free. We've been reconciled to him. I'm convicted of that reality. How about you? But a conviction is more than just a belief. A conviction is something that actually influences how one lives. And if our sin that once separated us from God, now we have been reconciled and it's been rectified and it's been removed, it's been paid, and now we can enter. Why would we then allow sin now to hinder our intimate relationship with Christ again? You see, all of this knowledge, all of this Belief that we have must be not just a conviction that we stand on with our lips, but it's a conviction we must live through our lives. For a conviction is something that affects how we then live. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Based upon all the doctrine that I've said about what we were before Christ and now that what we have in Christ, now how then should we live? We put our faith into practice. Because faith without works is, faith without works is, what good is it to confess Christ and not live for him? What good is it to believe that you're free from the 
enslavement of sin, yet allow yourself to be enslaved once again. How many of you believe that, that rec- you've been reconciled with Christ and that sin is no longer keeping you distant from you? You believe that? Raise your hand. Come on. Every hand should go up. How many of you are living that? That's a different story, isn't it? Is it a conviction? Is that the basis on why we were seeking to present to God a holy present, a holy gift? A person, not only just outwardly, but inwardly, that is clean, and that is pure, and that is righteous, and that is holy? Am I really convicted about that, or is it just something I just spout off that really impacts the way that I live? Number four, notice the consideration. The consideration to stay strong. Notice, therefore, by the mercies of God. We've seen this already. Mercy means the compassion of God, the empathy of God. God saw you in your need. You were lost, hell-bound, a sinner, dead, and he reached down in the pit of your depravity, and he brought you up out of that pit, and he set you on the righteousness of Christ. Why did he do that? For God so Loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Not only was he motivated by love, but his mercy. He looked down upon you and he had empathy and he had mercy and he had compassion on you. He cared about you. And because he had mercy upon you, he extended to you this wonderful, marvelous grace that's unmerited favor from God. And he pulled you out of your depravity and your lostness and he saved your soul. And when we think about presenting to God our best and most holy offering, we must always consider the love, the mercy, and the grace of God. The Apostle Paul's already said that in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Why don't we sin? Why do we choose to live a sin-free life? Why are we seeking to be holy? Why are we pursuing purity? Because I don't want to cheapen the love, the mercy, and the grace of God. I'm already saved. I don't have to live a certain life in order to be saved. My soul's already been saved and my eternal destiny is secure. And what motivates me now to be All that he meant for me to be in him, free from sin, is his mercy, his grace, and his love. That's what motivates me. And how would I dare cheapen that? I want want to give him a pure, unstained, holy, sin-free life because he loves me and he's been merciful to me and his grace has been bestowed upon me and that is the motivating factor for us seeking to be pure and nothing else. My purity doesn't gain extra favor from him or added blessing. I seek purity because of what he's done And I recognize and realize how much I've been forgiven. And the problem is that the longer we're Christians, the more pride sets in. The longer we're Christians, the more pride sets in. And and I don't know why it is, but somewhere along the way, we, we sort of lose this perspective of how much love and how much mercy and how much grace was necessary to save our sin sick souls. And we somehow think that we've arrived at this particular plateau in our lives where we no longer need his love or his mercy and his grace and the fact is that you're you're still a sinner and you still need his love you still need his mercy you still need his grace and you will continue to need it until you breathe your last breath because not every thought that you have is holy not every thing that comes out of your mouth is pleasing to him not every place that you look is the right place not every place that you go is the right place there are feelings and desires and passions that you have that are not rightfully his there are characteristics that you display that are not representative of the image of Christ and until you reach your final breath you are still a work in progress and as long as you're a work in progress you need his love you need his mercy and you need his grace We need a little more humility in the body of Christ and less pride. 
We need more honesty in the body of Christ and less dishonesty because, let's face it, your hearts and my heart, it's desperately wicked, and it will lie to you as it lies to me. And as I look in the mirror and I present myself as something that I am not, but he knows what I really am. We must always take that into consideration. Number five, there's a consecration that helps us stay strong. Notice, present your bodies holy. Present your bodies, a dedication of the body. To dedicate, to consecrate, to offer to God my body. Why my body? Well, he tells us earlier in Romans 6 verse 12. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What's the deal with my body? We've dealt with this before, but very quickly. The body is what inhabits your soul and your flesh. And your soul's been redeemed. Your soul is saved. You, you, you're already positioned in Christ because of the, the soul that's been saved. But the body is where your flesh resides, and your flesh is prone to sin. Don't your eyes want to look where they shouldn't look? Come on, don't they? Doesn't your mind want to go where it shouldn't go? Don't, don't your passions want to crave those things that are not? You, you have this struggle within you. And so as a result of that, the, the flesh that still resides in our body. You see, our bodies are not yet redeemed. The only time they're going to redeem is when our souls come back to unite with our bodies and they are resurrected from the dead. And then our bodies will then be redeemed and we will be conformed completely to the likeness of Christ. But until then, these unredeemed bodies, there's a constant struggle with the flesh flesh because my eyes want to look where I shouldn't look and my mind wants to go where it shouldn't go and my ears want to hear things they shouldn't hear and when I'm watching television and things come on I shouldn't see I don't flick the channel I stay on that channel when somebody whispers gossip that I know I shouldn't hear I want to listen to that gossip there's something within me and so we need to understand that we need to consecrate the members of our body to God and say, Lord, I want you to use my hands for, for your use and for your glory. Use my feet to go where you want me to go. Use my eyes to, for righteousness. Use my mind for righteousness. And it's a constant thing that we must daily, if not sometimes moment by moment, consecrate the members of our body unto the Lord. And when we're tempted to look where we shouldn't look, the Holy Spirit comes and says, don't look. And what do we do? We dedicate our body unto the Lord. Lord, these eyes are yours, and I choose not to look where, you've, where the enemy's tempted me to look. When I'm tempted to think thoughts that I shouldn't think, I give him my mind, and I say, Lord, I shouldn't think these thoughts, and so I, I present them to you. I, I give them to you. Lord, these hands are tempted to do what I shouldn't do. My, my heart is tempted to go where I shouldn't go. And so we just continually consecrate, dedicate, give them to the Lord over and over again for righteousness' sake. Lord, I'm available and accessible to you. Use my hands for your glory. Use my hands for your, for your use. Use my everything for you. And, I, and it's a consecration that we give to him of our total selves to the Lord. And so this consecration then leads us, then number six, to the challenge. It's interesting that he talks about present your bodies holy. We've already dealt with the definition of holy, but there's a challenge in this holiness because the Apostle Paul was writing to a culture, to some Christians who were Rome, and Rome was the most pagan, most idolatrous, adulterous, sexually driven, no holes barred culture that ever existed. Pedophilia, homosexuality, depravity, idolatry of all kinds and temples to multiple gods. There, there was a no holds barred. Everything was acceptable. Just let the flesh go and enjoy the flesh. And these people, these many of them were Jews, but primarily there were some also in this church that were Gentiles that were being saved out of this culture. They were being redeemed. 
And God is calling them. He's, we're going to see it in a minute. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he's saying to them, I, I understand the challenge of your culture. Let me ask you something. Do we have the same challenge in our culture today? It's not only a challenge from our culture, but many times it's also a challenge in the church. Because many who claim to know Christ and claim to be the church of Christ are now redefining what our culture has defined as morality, as acceptable, and as holy. And many of us have friends in the Christian circle who have a different definition of what is holy than what this book has. To accommodate the culture of depravity and carnality and a fleshly culture that's giving in to the soul. And there's a challenge going on. And many of us have cowered. We, we have become cowards to standing up for the truth and to confronting family members. And, and we, we just, well, you know, we just can't go there because we're going to be politically correct. You know, when I told our young man uh, from KNS New, uh, KSN News, I said, our church wants to be biblically correct, not politically correct. Because the Bible is what gives us our standard, represented in the person of Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of the scriptures. And the challenge is in the rub is there. The Apostle Paul knew this challenge well. He had already defined it in Romans 7, verse 17. So now, if it is no longer I who do it, now, some of you are going to relate to this. Should, all of us should relate to this. So now, it is no longer I who do it. Some of us, because of pride, we won't say this is us, but this is really all of us. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Really? Let's stop there. Your pride's rising up. Wait a minute, I got some good in me. You know, the only good in you is Jesus. Paul says, there's a lot of debate about the scripture, and there are many who want to say this is, this is pre-conversion, but, but I'm convinced this is post-conversion. This is after he's been saved, because up until Romans 12, 1, he's been talking about what we have before we were in Christ, and now that we're in Christ, and then all of a sudden he talks about the present, not just the past, but now the present. The verb tense in Romans 12, 1 goes to the present, not to the past, and he's talking about his present struggle, and he says, I know that there nothing good dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want, I keep on doing. Sound familiar? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me through my body, through the flesh. There's this dichotomy that's going on. There's a struggle in him. The very things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I don't want to do, I want up doing. And there's this, there's this challenge. There's a struggle. And the culture doesn't help. And my flesh is rising up. And so he's saying that then in this struggle, we're all going to deal with this as long as we live and as long as we have breath. The ultimate work of sanctification where you become completely and totally like Christ isn't until your body's give up the graves and, and they unite with their souls and then you're completely transformed. But as long as you have life and as long as you have breath, you're going to be struggling. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be the challenge that you're going to be dealing with. And the fact of the matter is that some of us just get tired. We get tired. And, and Satan knows that. I mean, he does. Satan knows that. He's wearing us down. That's why many in the church today are compromising. We, we can't stand up for the truth anymore because if we do, we'll lose our, our acceptability to the culture. They won't come to our church anymore. Because if we take a stand against homosexuality, they won't come. That's why we put it on our website. I told them today, I want to be honest with people. I'm not going to be silent about it. There are those churches who, who basically have embraced the cultural norms. We're not going to do that. And then there are those churches that choose to be silent about their positions because they don't want to offend anybody so that, that people will come who don't believe like they believe and then they can lie to them. It's kind of like one time when Patty and I were young and we were invited to a, a, a person's house and, and uh, uh, at the end of the, the meal, it was a nice meal, and there was eight or nine other couples there. We had a great time. 
they set us all in the living room and pulled out a couple of charts, and it was an Amway meeting. You ever been to one of those? They should have told me up front. I wouldn't have gone. I'm not interested. Well, but you're a pastor, and you can make some extra money. I'm not in the business of making money. I'm in the business of souls and making disciples right now. I'll let the Lord provide for me. There are churches that are like that. They're not going to come out and come clean and be honest. We put the name Baptist on our church because I'm not ashamed of that. I don't want to lie to people. I know there's some here who think we're a cult. That's okay. Read our doctrinal A little bit of pride there, I think. It's kind of like having two dogs in your heart. Just think of it that way. Somebody said one time, you have two dogs and they're both starving. And depends on which one you feed, winds up controlling your life. You have the flesh and it has an appetite and it's starving and it's... And you have the Holy Spirit and you're going, hey, 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 which one are you going to feed? And that's the challenge. But sometimes in the flesh, I want to feed the flesh. Just like the Apostle Paul said, and so do you. And we need to be really careful. Number last, notice there's a champion. The champion to help me be strong. Holy. That's a great word. It describes the person, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit. The other day, I asked you yesterday morning, we were talking to Matthew, our oldest son. He's 34 years old, and he's uh, studying at Southern Seminary for his Ph.D., and he went to his introductory week this last week, uh, went on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and came back Thursday, and a busy young man with four kids, I get it, and so we didn't really get to connect until yesterday morning, and Patty and I had a really great time talking to him for about 45 minutes. We never get that much time from him. You know what I'm talking about, parents? And the kids were screaming and yelling, you know, around, and it was just mom and dad and, 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 and us with our son, and so... But there was a little Cannon who's three years old, and Cannon had a Superman, you know, about that big. And uh, Cannon, being three, wants attention. And they, he was flying as Superman, you know, in the screen and out of the screen. And, hey, look, Doc. And he'd interrupt us and say, look, 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 here's my Superman. And we'd acknowledge the Superman and say, oh, here's the cape, here's the cape. And we'd acknowledge the cape. And I asked him, I said, but what about the three Ninja Turtles that we gave you for Christmas? You play with those anymore? Oh, yeah, I play with those, but I'm, I, he's really into Superman right now. And I got to thinking when I was studying this this morning, I, we all need a Superman. Superman is, is invincible, unconquerable. The one who comes to us at our most, t- most time of need and rescues us. You know who our Superman is? Oh, he's the Holy Spirit. He's the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus, because he is our helper. He is our comforter. He is the present. He is the gift that God has placed in us to help us in this battle against the flesh and against the world. We often, Baptists, forget about the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. We must never forget about the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit that has been endowed upon you the moment you were saved. He came into you, and without the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit, you would never be saved. And it was the Holy Spirit that convinced you of your sin and cleansed you of your sin and gave you the opportunity to receive faith in Jesus. And it's the work of the Spirit that we need in our lives to help us in this struggle with the flesh and with sin. He says it so. In Romans chapter 8, he gives us this wonderful, wonderful passage is said, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. He is a righteous spirit. He is a holy spirit and his presence brings his holiness into our lives. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, not If, meaning it's unlikely, but because he lives and dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, the flesh, through the Spirit who dwells in you. Skip down to verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit 
You put to death the deeds of the body. How do you put to death these fleshly desires and these appetites? How do you do that? In the power of the Spirit. And if you do that, he says, you will live. You will live. You will live the abundant life. You can live with less sin in your life. It doesn't mean the struggle will be over, but it means you'll be able to resist the devil and he will flee. It's interesting how the Holy Spirit then becomes that person, that presence in our lives that convicts us. Doesn't he? He's like that Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio. That as soon as Pinocchio does something, don't do that. Don't do that. And then there's another one come up here. It was the flesh. Yeah, dude. And it, it, there's a struggle. And, and the voice of the Holy Spirit leads us and how we should look and what we should say and how we should think and where we should go and, and what passions and desires and interests and, and all of those things need to represent, be represented in our lives. He convicts us. He corrects us. He counsels us. He is our counselor. Well, how do I get counsel from the Holy Spirit? You got to be in the Bible. It's the Bible that, that He uses to counsel us. And if you're not on a steady diet of the Word of God every day of your life, you're not going to be able to live a life that's free of the control of sin. It's sharper than any two edged sword, and it will cut and devour. And it will expose, not by itself, but through the spirit that is alive. John said the word became flesh and dwelt among men. Don't have time to go there. But oh, the work of the spirit. That if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us. The work of the spirit brings cleansing. I'm convicted. He brings correction. And then he cleanses me. And he washes me white as snow. We believe we did that at conversion when we accepted Jesus. Does it stop then? It's a lifelong process of every day. Coming before him and being convicted of my sin because I've been in the scriptures. And because of that conviction, then I'm corrected about my life. And then I confess it and he forgives and I'm cleansed. And through cleansing, I think he comforts. Because most of the time, sin brings regrets and remorse, doesn't it? Brings consequences that often cannot be removed. And many of us are dealing with regrets because we've made choices that we shouldn't have made and those choices affect our lives and affect our loved ones and affect our family you think sin only affects you it affects your marriage it affects your relationship it affects your children it affects your family it, it affects your our church it affects everything in me and everyone around me and we need a champion who will come and be our defender in this conversation with Matthew that I mentioned earlier, um, he finally got Cannon to go away, and we had some moments with Matt and talking about all his experiences this week and working with his Ph.D. and getting to know some people. And Anyway, um, in the background, you could hear, Ah! You know, Ah! And he'd so, he, he, he recognized that it was Cannon. He said, Cannon, quit screaming. And he would say, Caden's making me scream. So he said, Caden, quit making your brother scream. Ah! Caden, I said, quit making your brother scream. And then he finally said, Cannon, quit screaming. And his Cannon, little three-year-old, said, but Caden is making me scream, Daddy. Caden is making me scream. Can the flesh, if you're in Christ, make you do anything? No. No one can make you do anything. You can't blame others for your reactions and for your, your actions. <laughs> no more than you can blame the devil for your sin. We must accept responsibility for our own actions. 
Because in Christ, we've been given a champion. And that champion gives us power and helps us attain victory. That's not just momentary, but it's lasting. And as long as we'll submit to God, we can resist the devil. And when we resist the devil, he will flee. And sin is not our only option. If we're humble enough to acknowledge I need some help, if we're honest enough to recognize and realize I have some sin that need confessing, we're on our way, I think, to victory. So as we close, here's the two questions I want to ask. Am I presenting God with my best effort in pursuing purity? Am I seriously committed to staying strong in my battle over sin? I'm convinced that some of us have thrown in the towel and said, there's no way. I can't overcome this. I've been struggling with this for so long. It's defeated me for so long. I just give up. We're apathetic. We're, we're despondent. We're, we're discouraged. We're defeated. And we, we just can't. And so we've learned to live with it. I think that's spiritual dysfunction. Because in Christ, he says to us in this beautiful passage, Romans 8, 37, know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're a conqueror today if you're in Christ because you have a champion through the person of the Holy Spirit. And you are not to be enslaved anymore because you've been set free. Leave today free not only the condemnation of sin but from the control of sin and when you sin we have an advocate with the father and his name's jesus or once we confess our sin he will cleanse us forgive us let's pray